When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the July edition of The Compliance Life. In The Compliance Life, I take a look at the journey to and sometimes from the CCO chair of an individual in compliance. In the month of July, I visit with Joe Burke. I've known Joe for some time. He's most recently the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Quest Software. It's a fascinating journey into compliance from a career that began in a white shoe New York law firm to Kentucky Fried Chicken and to Dell. In part one, academic career and early professional life. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the July edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I am thrilled to visit with Joseph Burke or Joe Burke. Uh, I've known Joe for quite some time. He has been a mainstay in the compliance profession uh, for really quite a while. So, Joe, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me. Thanks, Tom. I'm excited to talk to you about it. So, Joe, could you tell us about your uh, academic career and perhaps uh, your early years after you moved into the legal profession? Um, I started my um, early academic life up in Buffalo, New York, where I'm originally from. I went to Canisius College for a year, um, and while I was there, uh, studied French and um, uh, began sort of my focus on history. Um, I spent a year, the next year, in the Stu- SUNY, State University of New York program, 
uh, in France for a year in Grenoble. Um, and then from there I transferred to the University of Virginia where I graduated. So a pretty splintered sort of college experience um, and then uh, spent a year at home with my parents up in Buffalo. And then I went to Fordham Law School in New York City. Um, I had always wanted to be in New York. Um, you know, my dad and I had talked about uh, going to school there in New York, which would make it easier for me to get a job there. Uh, and it really worked out well. I went to Fordham for um, uh, the duration. Uh, I made it to the International Law Journal, uh, became an editor uh, in my last year there. Uh, unfortunately, my dad passed away in my third year of law school, and uh, you know, so that was a, a bit of a challenge. But uh, I put myself in a pretty good position to be able to uh, find work up there in New York, and I worked for a law firm, uh, Donovan Leisure, Newton and Irvine, which doesn't exist anymore, um, but at the time uh, was sort of a litigation-based firm that did some corporate work, and I became a, a corporate and transactional lawyer working on M&A and private placements and so forth, and um, really sort of a, a routine kind of um, entry into the legal profession in a corporate environment that, uh, it, at least in, in my impression at the time, was not highly pressured. For those who don't know Donovan Leisure, first of all, its founder was Wild Bill Donovan. From Buffalo. So that makes it notable of its, in and of itself. But it was really a, a white shoe, very prestigious New York firm. They came out to Michigan and interviewed, and they were very well received, uh, highly thought of. It's what we at, in Michigan certainly thought of as one of the top-tier New York firms. What was it like uh, to work there? And Maybe could you tell us a little bit more about your practice at Donovan Leisure? Well, it was a great firm to work at. Um, it did have some of the characteristics of some of the old white shoe firms. Um, when I started there, this was in... 1986, um, and for the entire time I was there, I was there for four years, I left in 1990, they had um, two um, elderly women who uh, at 10 o'clock and at 2.30 would bring around a tea and cookies cart and visit literally every office. They knew people's orders, so if you liked Malamars, you were going to get Malamars whether you were sitting in your office or not. Uh, and just an indication of some of the old school style of it. But um, it was really a great firm. I, I met uh, uh, a partner there, uh, Peter Smith, who I worked with for the entire four years I was there, taught me more about securities law and transactional law than I ever could have learned in law school. Um, and in fact, uh, I met my future mother-in-law at the firm. Uh, I met her daughter sitting in her office waiting for a ride home uh, from work one day, but you know, um, her mother-in-law was act. My mother-in-law was actually um, a real estate lawyer, so I learned a little bit about real estate as well. It, it was really um, a very family-oriented firm. I know a lot of firms back then were uh, partners that had been there for ages and really loved firm, the firm and firm life. And Donovan was one of those places where you know I think people went to spend their entire career. Uh, and and I actually thought I might do that. Um, it turned out not. It turned out I decided that an in-house uh, environment might be better for me uh, pretty quickly, but uh, but it was just a a wonderful firm to be a part of, and uh, you know it it uh, came to an end far too soon. After Donovan Leisure, you moved over into the corporate world. What was your first job there? What uh, what did you handle, and was it a culture shock? Yeah, it w it was definitely a culture shock. I um, 
I decided, my wife and I, uh, when we got married in uh, 1989, decided that New York City was not the place that we wanted to raise kids. And so I started looking for other opportunities. Uh, I don't know if you remember in 1989, uh, really the real estate market was in a terrible position. Um, and uh, honestly, the economy wasn't great. And I remember the recruiter saying to me, look, if you want to move out of New York, I can get you a job next week. If you want to stay in New York, it might be a year. Well, I quickly found a spot at Pepsi. Uh, Pepsi at the time owned the restaurants Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC. And they had an opening down in Louisville, Kentucky at Kentucky Fried Chicken, which always brings a smile to people's lips when they hear that I worked for, at, for Kentucky Fried Chicken for six years. But it was a great job. I mean, I worked for, believe it or not, the R&D department at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I supported uh, they had a minority, minority loan guarantee program um, for franchisees. Um, I worked with finance. I worked with uh, the IT department. They had a very far-sighted uh, IT guy who ended up going to Nike and running Nike's IT for a while after he left KFC. So I was really lucky. Um, the culture shock was in going from a place in New York where the workday started at 9.30 but usually didn't end till 10 o'clock p.m., uh, I think on a pretty routine basis, uh, you know, it, it was a much more of a nine to five kind of thing down in Kentucky. And so there was this sense that, um, not that it was easy, but that I wasn't doing enough. You know, you, you get into this environment where, um, you know, you've got lawyers that have a life and can go home at five or six o'clock in the evening and have dinner with their kids and maybe do a little reading or following up in the evening. Of course, in, in the early 90s, we weren't doing quite as much email as we're doing today. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was a bit of a culture shock first to leave New York uh, and, and not be sitting. I was very lucky at Donovan Leisure. We were in the Rockefeller. We were in 30 Rock and I was on the 40th floor. And so to now be sitting on the first floor of a corporate building in suburban uh, Louisville was just, uh, uh, that, that was probably the biggest culture shock for me. Well, once again, for our perhaps younger cultural aficionados, you said two key things. One was you correctly pronounced Louisville, not Louisville, Louisville. Uh, <laughs> and Louisville. Louisville. Uh, number two, you correctly articulated the name Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's not KFC, it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. So uh, kudos there. Uh, and finally, from you talked about the kind of economic downturn. They called it the Bush Recession. Uh, I was practicing law in Houston and had started practicing law in 83. And Houston was, uh, the energy industry was just decimated. And the economy of the Bush uh, recession actually elevated the Houston economy. So we thought things were going pretty good because they'd been so bad. Um, I have done some franchise work. So I was wondering if you could say a few words about the franchise relationship uh, and I know you weren't in compliance then, but did that sort of, I guess you would call it an internal joint venture partner is what a franchisee is. And so I've always been intrigued by the questions around compliance and franchise franchisees, not really from the legal perspective of do you have to do it, but the relationship is typically so structured that franchisees kind of follow what the franchisor says. Kind of what did you learn about that relationship while you were at Kentucky Fried Chicken? Well, a couple of things. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, I think from a lawyer's perspective, the franchise relationship is 100% contract-based, right? 
I think the franchisee in most instances did not approach it as a contract relationship. It was a family relationship and particularly with Kentucky Fried Chicken and the Colonel who frankly uh, had been a huge part of the operation, frankly, until shortly before I joined the company, the Colonel was friendly with many of the franchisees that we had even uh, in 1990 when I joined the firm. Um, I think the the most important aspect of the franchise relationship is, as everybody would, uh, you know, understand in a contract relationship, the franchisor, the the corporate entity, held all the cards. However, if you could make your franchise go, and if you could grow that franchise into additional units you could really generate a lot of influence and a lot of leeway in the way that you run your business with the franchisor. The things that were most important to us were image, uh, you know, following franchise process, obviously the revenue and the, the uh, franchise fees. But frankly, if the concept worked, which of course KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken is still around today, um, if the concept worked, you could make a lot of money, but you had to follow the rules of the contract that I think caused a lot of smaller franchisees to stumble. Uh, they wanted to run their business. They knew that they were in charge of running the business that they had franchised or that they had signed up for a franchise for. But sometimes they didn't quite understand the extent to which that contract governed what they did. And that's where there was friction. Uh, is where you'd have somebody who says, well, I know how to run this business. I know how to run a restaurant business, but they didn't necessarily fully buy into everything they'd signed up to in the franchise contract. You really said something I find very interesting, Joe, and that's uh, when you referred to franchisees and many times feeling that this was a family. And I really have a kind of a two-part question around culture. Uh, I've talked to uh, a lot of uh, compliance officers and uh, legal legal types who've worked in major iconic U.S. brands, and they said one of the things was, and you also touched on it, they didn't want to destroy, obviously they didn't want to destroy the reputation, but they didn't want to do anything to impinge the reputation, and they felt like they were standing on the shoulders of people who had come before them, but their role at that point was to carry on and carry it on for the next generation. So they had a lot of pride and a lot of pride in getting it right. Uh, and you, t you did mention that. I wanted to ask you, did that sort of culture exist both at the corporate office, the franchisor office, but then you talked about the family relationship. Could you say a few words about culture and the culture of Kentucky Fried Chicken and how uh, you, you all really emboldened that culture through what you and I agree was a contractual business relationship. Sure, absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that I had never heard of before I got to Kentucky Fried Chicken was the concept of kerneling. And this was a verb that we used. And, you know, of course, Colonel Sanders was the, um, you know, was the brand. But Colonel Sanders running his restaurant and franchisees ever since then uh, the successful ones, had a way of connecting with their customers, even in a fast food restaurant, of walking around the restaurant from time to time, of making sure that they would visit the cash registers when somebody was checking out, of really connecting and what we called kerneling, making sure that customer had a good experience in the restaurant. That's what the good franchisees did. 
And I think that culture, and even the, the use of the word, the odd word kerneling, had such a strong hold on the successful franchisees. They wanted to be part of something bigger than just this contract, bigger than just this restaurant. And I think what they did was they, they had the touchstone of the kernel in this concept of being an ambassador for the brand and for their own franchise. So I, absolutely, that was a big part of the franchise. The family aspect was a little bit different. We had a couple of guys, uh, one guy, and I'll, I'll bl I'm blanking on his name right now, he had been a basketball player at the University of Kentucky. He had worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken for 25 years. He was beloved. I mean, the biggest going away party I've ever seen anywhere I've ever been. This guy was family to so many employees at the headquarters operation because he'd been there so long, because he was Kentucky blue, and it was really, to me, the first time I saw, you know, that sort of family approach. I talked a little bit about it with the law firm, but I saw that sort of approach of a guy who really dedicated his whole life to an administrative role at Kentucky Fried Chicken and made the most of it and, and was considered family when he left. Joe, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on you or any of the topics you've touched on, what would be the best way to reach you? The best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. That's what I use to uh, connect with everybody out there in the world. So that's where I am today. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to The Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.